I just want to thank these, these guys for leading us today in worship. Uh, these college guys, it's great to have them. They're with, they're, they've been a blessing for us. Um, and if you're, if you're new with us, if you're here with us online, know that we're glad you're here. I'm going to jump right in today because we have one of those Bible verses uh, that I could come up here, say, and just kind of walk off the stage. Uh, and it would be something for us to wrestle with for a lifetime. And it's the hammer verse of Philippians 2.14. It says this, do all things without grumbling or arguing. How's that for a little conviction today? Anybody uh, get on an argument or complain that maybe this morning on the way to church? And this is one of those memory verses uh, that we need to hear on repeat in our life. And what's crazy is that Paul says this from a prison cell. But that said, uh, what we know to be true about God's word is that it can be both very simple and yet also deep enough to mine out for a lifetime. And so, uh, no, I'm not going to walk off the stage this morning. Although I think I'd probably get my point across if I did that. Uh, Because as we'll see, although parts of this are very simple to understand, the rabbit hole for us today uh, goes into the depths of thought that can cause a lifetime of pondering uh, that pastors and theologians have thought about for centuries. And it's centered around this uh, big theological word we call sanctification. You know, ultimately ultimately seeing how does does this actually happen? How does sanctification actually happen? You know, one one writer, he said, this this passage today is sanctification 101. But to rephrase this, uh, to put a little bit more simple, to say it more simpler, uh, we could say sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus. It's the process of becoming holy. Which in essence is becoming like Jesus because Jesus is holy, uh, which is our main idea today. Joy is found in becoming like Jesus. And before we get into Philippians 2, uh, verses 12 to 18 today that follow our Christ text that we saw last week, and I want to first look at this idea of becoming like Jesus. I, I think we naturally get this concept of becoming like someone because kids grow up thinking, you know, they want to be just like, you know, fill in the blank. You know, maybe it's a parent or a role model, or maybe like my three-year-old, maybe it's a fictitious character named Elsa. I think we also, you know, get this from possibly an acting perspective. Uh, when the actor needs to come, become like a character, you know, at some point I'm going to stop sharing all of my pitfalls, but today I think it kind of makes sense for today. Um, you may be aware that I I was in, when I was in high school, I came to Christ through a ministry called Young Life, and it was an outreach ministry to high school kids. Well, part of the weekly Young Life Club were skits that involved the leaders acting like different characters, and they're supposed to be funny, uh, to get the kids laughing, to help us break down walls and barriers so they could hear the gospel. Uh, and when I got to college, I became a Young Life leader in high, uh, to, to a local high school, at a local high school, and y'all, something I've just come to terms with is I'm just not really a funny guy. Uh, in some ways, you know, I love being a goofball, uh, being silly, but it's, uh, when it's planned, it really doesn't go very well most of the time. That's just the way God has made me, and I've kind of accepted that. Uh, me and my sister were both uh, leaders together, uh, and we were both similar in that way. We love to be silly uh, and laugh, uh, but these skits for both of us, they were a little bit of our Achilles heel. You know, we were both, we were just terrible at them, just awful. And the reason was because in these skits, we would try to become like a different person or some sort of fictitious character. And y'all, you know, I learned from an early age that acting was just not in my future. It's just not. And in my, uh, in, in my book, I would have kind of labeled these skits as just sacrificing for the gospel. Um, and part of the acting process in these skits uh, was to be- become like these people or this, these characters, to walk like them, to talk like them, you know, with a good bit of embellishment. 
kind of being over the top. And well, part of my problem was that whenever I would try to become my character, my voices would slowly morph and change just throughout the entire skit. You know, I'd start speaking uh, in character correctly, and then within about 30 seconds, I would just kind of forget what I was doing, and my voice would change just to a normal voice, and then I would correct it, and I would all of a sudden start talking like a surfer dude, and then I would start talking, you know, like a, a British guy, and then it almost always ended in a country dude voice. That was just my favorite. Um, and without fail, this happened almost every time. It was terrible. Uh, people would laugh, but mainly because I was just terrible at it. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, I think it's pretty easy for us to do the same thing, you know, in our Christian life, to lose sight of what we're seeking to become and easily get off track, uh, which is another reminder for us that as Christians, uh, what we're striving for in this life is to become like Jesus. And we're going to see how this happens in our passage today. And I'm going uh, to go ahead and read the entire passage today, and then we'll break it down from there. So follow along with me in Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. This is what it says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so as a simple guide for our time today, uh, we're going to break this down into three turns. It's going to be uh, number one, work out. Number two, shine and rejoice. So work out, shine and rejoice, uh, which in my opinion sounds a little bit like a rap song or a country song or a Rascal Flatts song, uh, a backwards country song. You know, but let me be clear on this. This in fact is not from a country song as we saw from a passage today. This is from God's word. Part of becoming like Jesus is to work out, to shine and to rejoice. And as we'll see, uh, this is not what our culture would think when I say those words. Uh, our working out, it doesn't happen at the gym. Uh, as our passage shows us, we are to work out our salvation. Uh, we don't shine as stars for the world, kind of like superstars. No, we shine in the world. We shine in contrast to the world. Uh, we don't live for the world. We are sent into the world, but more specifically, sent into the world to shine a light for Jesus. Uh, and then our third one is, is to rejoice. And I think we kind of get that one. But what's different is what causes Christians to rejoice. And so that said, we're going to go back uh, through these verses, a few verses at a time. Uh, we're going to see each block or each kind of turn as we go. But before we get there, I want to look at the first three words in verse 12. And these are really important. These first three words are really important. Paul says, therefore, my beloved. Those are the first three words. He first says, therefore. And just as a, maybe you've heard this, but as a simple uh, Bible study tip, whenever we see the word therefore in the Bible, we should always ask, what is it there for? And this is important for us today. When Paul says, therefore, he's basically saying, because of everything I just said uh, and what follows uh, is a response to that. So if we lose the therefore, it would be very easy to preach moralism today, which is not Christianity. Moralism that says be a good person or to be a better person or to do more or to try harder. Uh, this is so dangerously close to Christianity that it calls people to be become turned off or just flat out miss the real thing. 
because uh, causing people to think they're Christian, but in reality, I have completely missed it. And the therefore in this passage is the difference between moralistic Christianity and a gospel-centered Christianity. Because the therefore points us back to the central point of this book, which is the Christ passage that we saw last week. Or maybe uh, you remember from last week, it's the stair steps that Jesus took uh, to come down his castle, to come off his throne, to leave his throne, and in his humility, to go down into the dungeon of our humiliation and to rescue us, seeing that uh, by going to the cross and dying our death that we deserved, uh, Jesus uh, took, because of our sin and disobedience, Jesus took it. And when we trust in Jesus, he rescues us and carries us on his shoulders to be exalted with him, carries us up back to the top of the castle with him, exalted with him. And so in the gospel, Jesus rescues us out of the dungeon of our sin and he carries us back on his shoulders, back to the throne of grace. And if you're not a Christian, if you're watching online, or if you're here today, if you don't believe in Jesus, hear this today. If we do not have Jesus, we're left in the dungeon of our sin. And only through Jesus can we be with God forever. And this is the incredible good news of the gospel uh, that causes us to be in awe of God. This is the foundation for us today. And then therefore, in our passage, is saying because of God's incredible mercy and grace and kindness that he has shown us by rescuing us because of that, what we're about to read is our response. And that's important. Because whenever Paul tells us to do something, uh, in most of his letters that he writes, it's all, it almost always follows the gospel. And then he says, uh, therefore, and then he says, my beloved. In some translations said, my dear friends. And this is important too, because what Paul is about to say uh, is addressed to people who are already Christians. And then he says to read it again in verse 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we're going to break this down for, uh, in just a, for just a second. Look at uh, the part we just read. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, so Paul here uh, is affirming to them. He's saying, you're, you've done well. You're doing well. They've been obedient. And I think, you know, I think teachers uh, and parents and maybe dog owners will get this because uh, when they're with you, they act right. Uh, but as soon as you leave, there's a temptation to just not act right. It's one thing to be obedient, obedient when the teacher is there, but when uh, the true test is when the substitute teacher comes in. Or for parents, when the babysitter comes in, and for uh, you dog owners, y'all, I need your help, okay? Y'all, I love my dog. We've got the sweetest dog, I think, you know, in the world maybe. You know, I snap my fingers, she follows me, she listens to me, she doesn't need a leash, uh, she obeys my commands, but when I'm not looking, my dog turns on me in a heartbeat. Uh, she's got some serious problems, but thankfully, uh, this was not the case with the Philippi church. They are obedient uh, when Paul is there and when he is not there. And Paul knew, uh, and he's exhorting them, he's commending them, he's encouraging them to continue obey even more so now. And so in the second half of verse 12, look what he says. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul was confident that they could work out their salvation with fear and trembling, which leads us to our first turn. Number one, work out. 
And as I said, no, I'm not talking about going to the gym. Now, although the idea is similar, uh, but you're, you're not working out your body, you're working out your own salvation, which means uh, it's going to take work, it, uh, doing something, uh, giving some effort, being disciplined, working hard, putting in the sweat. It's going to be strenuous. Uh, you're not always going to like it. It's not going to always feel good. It's, uh, it's, but in laboring and straining, it is for your good. And when Paul says, work out your own salvation, uh, this is what we need to be sure to get this right. Uh, where those first few words in our passage today are so important. Because we need to make sure what Paul is saying, and we need to make sure what he is not saying. First, he's not saying work for your salvation. This is important. If you're new to Christianity, or maybe maybe you've been around uh, church, or you've been to church, uh, hear me loud and clear on this. There's absolutely nothing you can do to be accepted by God. There's nothing that you can do, we can do to earn God's love and to make God happy. That is completely anti-gospel and it's not Christianity. Which unfortunately is what most people think of when they think of Christianity. Thinking uh, that Christianity is a list of do's and don'ts. uh, That hopefully the good in their life will outweigh the bad. uh, And then maybe God will be happy with us. And this idea is pervasive in our culture and it's under the mirage of Christianity. But brothers and sisters, this is not Christianity. This is a false gospel and it is not good news. The Bible is very clear. There is absolutely nothing in yourself that you can do to earn God's approval. The only thing that will set you apart and make you approved by God is faith in Jesus Christ alone. And and this is a free gift that you do not earn. And so when Paul says, work out your salvation, we need to keep in mind that he is writing to people who are already Christians. This is not a working to be saved, but a working uh, rather because we're saved. It's the outworking of a life that has responded to the gospel. In essence, uh, we'll say this a few different ways. Because God has accepted us in the gospel, we can work out our salvation. When Paul says work out your salvation, he means to say it another way. Exercise your faith. Like like do something. Or when we say, uh, say it this way, because God has accepted us, What we do actually matters. What we do and how we live shows how we've been changed. And when our lives are changed by the gospel, it's evidence of our salvation. It shows that God has started something in us. Maybe we can say it this way. We don't change our lives to be accepted by God. We're accepted by God. Therefore, our lives are changed. We don't do to be accepted. We're accepted. Therefore, we do. We could go on and on and on, but I want to make sure we get it. Because this is a very subtle, yet a very distinct difference. And so, and so Christian, this is for you. Right? This is an exhortation. This is a response to the gospel. This is for you to hear and believe and put into practice today. Uh, but I want us to hear the rest of verse 12 and, and, and then also uh, 13 again. Because it says, uh, work out your salvation uh, because uh, God has saved you. Do something. Right? But yet, do it with fear and trembling. And this is a quick statement here about this. This is not like an anxious, uh, disabling fear and trembling. No, this is an awe-inspired. This is an enabling fear and trembling. There's a difference. You know, a disabling fear and trembling uh, would work against itself. It's not a crippling fear. It's an honoring fear. It's an acknowledgement of our extreme sinfulness and God's extreme holiness. There's a sense of reverence that's understood. And coming out of last week's Christ passage, it makes sense. Realizing the humiliation Jesus took for us, 
right? It puts us in awe. It puts us in a fear and a reverence and a trembling. It puts us, as we saw last week, bowing down before God. And so Christian, work for the Lord. We live our lives in a Christ-honoring way because of our posture before God, because we honor and respect God. A dishonoring and a disrespecting faith would say, I've been accepted by God. Now I can do whatever I want. To which we, we would need to ask, do you even know God? Because if you truly knew God, you wouldn't say that. And then in verse 13, right, Christian, hear this again. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So think about this, right? We work out our salvation, but yet it is God who is working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are working, we are responsible, but yet God is the one changing us. We do not change us, God changes us. And this is so helpful and this is so encouraging and hopeful. This is what this means. If we are pursuing godliness, if we are reading our Bibles, if we are seeking to grow to be more like Jesus, confessing sin, going to God in prayer, asking for God to help us, if we're coming to be with the body of Christ on Sunday or throughout the weeks in our groups, if we're seeking to be uh, evangelistic, if we're praying for other people, if you're actively trying to love your neighbor because of how Jesus has first loved you, if any of these things are happening in your life, any of them, it's evidence that God is working in your life. Don't miss that. Don't miss the evidence of grace in your life of how God is working in you. You know, when we look at verse 13, it's the hope of how we work out our salvation. We don't work out our salvation in our own strength. We work out our salvation in God's strength. And this is, again, incredibly hopeful, knowing that real change is possible because it is God who works in you for his good pleasure. We can say it this way. We work out our salvation while God empowers it for real change. And get this, the same God that created the world, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, right, that same God is working in your life for his will and for his good purposes. And then when I think about this for our church, you know, knowing this, it was written for a group, knowing it was written for a group of people, uh, more for a group of people than individuals, because it's, you know, it says work out our own salvation. So we think it's for individuals, but it's more specifically for a group of people. When we read it, it's easy for us to just think of ourselves. But when he wrote it, it was to be received as a community project. You know, a, a church-wide, all-together effort. And when I think about this for our church, about the first half of our vision statement, which is to see Jesus change lives. This verse makes me incredibly hopeful knowing that it's not up to me or it's not up to you to change someone's life. No, it's God who works in their life to change them. And he uses each of us collectively together to make this happen. That means that nobody is too far, that no life is too, too difficult and nothing is outside of the realm of possibility for God. That means that God uses us and takes, uh, takes the hopeless and then God makes them holy. God uses us all together and takes the filthy and he makes them faithful. God uses us all together and he takes the wretched and he makes them righteous. That's just what God does. The outworking of the gospel is a community effort. And so when we read the next verse, verse 14, the hammer verse that I kind of started off with today, where it says, do nothing without grumbling or disputing. We need to read that verse and know that that verse is possible day in and day out, that it is feasible and it is not without reach, while knowing that it's also a community project. Will it be perfect? No. But can we grow towards that and grumble less and less and argue less and less? Yes, absolutely. 
Right? But what I want to point out about this verse on grumbling and arguing is that this verse is the very first verse, very first thing that Paul mentions after he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so practically, how do we work out our, work out our salvation with fear and trembling? The first thing he says is don't complain and argue. That's what he says. And this language, for those that remember from our Exodus series, and this grumbling and arguing language is being drawn from Israel in the wilderness, reminding the Philippi church and us to not grumble and to not complain and to not argue with one another, to remember the danger of it, as we saw from the book of Exodus. And as we think about verse 14, we need to think, we need to remember that verse 13 is the power for verse 14. God is working in us, so we are able to not grumble and dispute, to not complain and argue. God works in us collectively together so that we all together are able to do all things without grumbling or arguing. And the reason we should work and strive to do this is because of verse 15. These verses build on one another. So look at verse, let's look at 14, 15, and 16 kind of all together. Look at 14 again. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then the, the reason follows that you may be blameless and innocent children of God with, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And so as Paul is building his case here, he's showing us that we are to work out our salvation, work towards godliness, to grow in Christ's likeness, uh, Christ's likeness and by not grumbling or arguing. Uh, but what I want you to pay attention to here is to see this connection, uh, this specifically the connection between arguing or grumbling in verse 14 and then shining in verse 15, which gets us to our next, uh, next turn. Number two, shine. And so to rephrase this, when we work out our salvation, we shine as lights in the world. And so how do we shine as lights in the world? Well, we work out our salvation. And so how do we work out our salvation? Paul shows us, right? We work out our salvation by not doing something. And then there's also something that we do. And as we've already said, we don't argue and complain. That's verse 14. But then what follows verse 14, for while we don't argue and complain, Paul says that you may be blameless, innocent, and children of God without blemish. And yes, these are all things that we as Christians inherit. We inherit all of this through Christ in the gospel. This is the eternal inheritance for the Christian. And so yes, before God, because of Jesus, we are already blameless, innocent children of God and without blemish if we have faith in Christ. However, as we know, we still live in the world and sin is still prevalent. And although we are labeled this by God, the world does not give us this label. And so in working out our salvation, we're shining in the world. We're living out and displaying to the world what we've already been, been labeled by God. And this needs to happen, as he says in verse 15, because our world, our culture, uh, Paul's culture, it's twisted and it's crooked. You know, I, don't know if, I don't know if you knew this or not, uh, but our generation is not the first generation to be uh, considered twisted and crooked. Paul also lived in a twisted and crooked generation. Paul, Paul's world had some problems, had some major problems. And so although uh, we've been, we're counted and deemed blameless, innocent, and without blemish before God, in order to shine as lights in our twisted and crooked world, we don't complain and argue. That's what Paul says. 
complaining and arguing at school or with your coworkers, uh, with your neighbors, on social media, or with your family or on your sports teams, whatever it may be, simply by not complaining and not arguing, just doing that sets you apart. Because no one likes complaining or arguing. Not even in our twisted and crooked world. Because get this, Paul shows us that it doesn't represent Christ well. And this is not just with Christians to the world, because remember, he's actually talking to a church. And so we need to heed the warning today. When the church, when the people of God argue and complain to each other, it does not shine a light on Jesus. It shines a light on our problems. However, in contrast, uh, when we remember that Christ is enough, that the gospel is sufficient, that each day we wake up, we are doing far greater than we deserve. We as Christians can believe that no matter what happens because of our standing with God in the gospel, we can stand with great confidence believing that every day, every new day, it, we can believe that it's the greatest day of our life. Hear that today, Christian. No matter what is going on in your life right now, you can walk Walk through today believing that today is the best day of your life. Because every day we are with God. Today we are given his new riches. Today we are being held and sustained by God. Today we are put in God's holy presence. You know, as I've, as I've thought about this this week, you know, I've thought about adopting this just kind of a, as a normal, normal routine. When someone says, hey, how are you doing? We can say in confidence, it's the best day of my life. I mean, just think about it. How much of a difference would it make actually believing that every day we're living is the best day of our life? Remembering that we're doing far better today than we deserve. This is, this is something we have to fight for, to work for, to labor for, and to sweat for. You know, this is something we have to continually remember because every day we get gospel amnesia. Every day we wake up thinking our life is about ourself, thinking that we deserve something better, but no, we don't. Let me remind us of the gospel again. Today we deserve God's wrath. But yet as Christians today, we get God's grace. How's that, oh, how's that for a way to start off your day? Saying to God, uh, coming before God, saying, I'm a wicked sinner. I live in a wicked and twisted world. God, my sin is great. But yet today, God, because of Jesus Christ, God, I'm given your riches. I'm given your grace and I'm given your kindness. I am your beloved child today, knowing, God, you are working in me to will and to work for your good pleasure. God, I don't deserve this. We can say because of this alone, this is the greatest day of my life. God is working in me today. Right, what a joy we can have. You know, John Newton has a great illustration for this. Uh, he's an old dead guy. Great guy to read. You know, I'm going to rephrase it. Um, they, these old dead guys can be hard to follow sometimes, so I'm going to rephrase it. This is, this is how he likened complaining for the Christian. He said, imagine uh, a man was going to New York City to take, a, take possession of a large estate and his car or a buggy, whatever he was driving at the time, uh, breaks down a mile before he got to the city. And so this man on his way uh, to inherit this great estate, he, uh, he has to walk his last mile to get there and his feet probably hurt and he's kind of complaining. And John Newton says, uh, what a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining miles saying my carriage is broken or my car is broken and my car is broken. To say it a different way, if that man was to, on his way to his great inheritance, whining, complaining, blubbering the entire way because his, his car was broken down, we could look at that man and say, you're a fool. 
You're a fool. You should be running and singing and leaping and dancing on your way to your great inheritance, leaving your broken down car in the dust, forgetting about it, because look what you're going to. As for us today, we need to, as Christians, we need to remember we only have a mile to go. Our life is short. We will soon see Christ and be with Christ and, and, and have our full inheritance. We don't, we don't deserve our inheritance. It's an incredible gift. And so we can go our last mile in this life with a joyful song. And when we get this, we're showing the world something different that we can shine and we can glimmer in a dark world. We're, we're distinct and we're set apart. And so simply not by not arguing and complaining, grumbling or murmuring or disputing, uh, it's a distinct way to show that we're set apart. And so that's what we're not to do in order to shine. But then, as I said, there's, there's also something we're to do. And it's the first part of verse 16, which says, holding fast to the word of life. We shine in our world when we all together, when we don't argue and complain, but then also when we hold fast to the word of life, when we hold fast to God's word, when we cling to it tight, uh, when we cling tight to scripture, when we hide it in our hearts, when we're guided by it, when we hold on to God's word as our very life. Brothers and sisters, when we do this, we shine. This is so important. God's word is of utmost importance in our life. And so how do we, how do we grow in Christ's likeness? How can we shine in the world? Well, we hold fast to the word of life. And so if you're not in God's word, reading, if you're not reading God's word or meditating on God's word, sitting under the teaching of God's word or hearing God's word, change uh, will be a challenge. And I think it's fair to say it, it might not happen. You know, I, I want to make this very clear. I, I'm not saying reading and memorizing scripture, uh, me, 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 reading and memorizing God's word will change you. Because as we know, Pharisees read God's word. They mastered it, but they were not changed. It also takes the power of God working in you to be changed. But where God's word is absence, I would, be ventured, I would venture to say, uh, quite possibly so, is God's power. And so what is incredibly humbling for me, you know, as a preacher and a teacher of God's word, doing this week in and week out, is the realization that my words will not change anybody, won't change me, won't change you. Only by God's word and God's power will we be changed. I have no power to change you. I have no power to change myself. But there is power uh, that is funneled through God's word. And so brothers and sisters, we will not see Jesus change live, lives if God's word is not part of the process. God works in us and through us for his will and his good purpose. And it's funneled through his word. And so may we be a people that long and hunger and thirst day in and day out for God's word, that we would be a people of the book, that we would sit under it and be guided by it while praying, praying for God's power to infuse what we know to be true into our hearts and lives to change us and make us more like Jesus. And when this happens, as Paul shows us at the end of verse 16, we can move from a temporary outlook to an eternal outlook. And look what Paul says in verse 16. This is holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul here again points to the day of Christ. He's having, he has an eternal perspective, but he does it, he does it using the language of running and laboring. He's showing the strenuous nature of ministry, the idea of working out. 
He's showing the challenges that come as shining as stars in a dark world. Uh, It comes with a cost. Paul was laboring and running uh, and living his life so that uh, they would shine as lights in the world. And Paul here, he's reiterating, he's reiterating the community effort of this passage. He's taking responsibility. Paul is taking responsibility for their actions. He took responsibility for how this church is working out their salvation, for how they lived, uh, for what their lives reflected. And what I want to point out is that we can't isolate. We can't be isolated from each other. We have to be involved in each other's lives. We, in essence, are responsible. We have a responsibility for each other. And Paul emphasizes this in the first part of verse 17. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. So Paul is showing that he's willing to make great sacrifices for his church, for his brothers and sisters in Christ. God's word, it calls us to bear one another's burdens, uh, to live out our Christian life together with one another. And this is so important uh, to to remember that the church, we're a family and a healthy family helps each other. We care for each other, encourage one another. We take responsibility for each other. And also we make great sacrifices for each other. And we look at what God's word, what is very clear in God's word is there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian, a Christian in isolation. You know, kind of that idea of, uh, you know, you don't need the church because the cup of coffee, I've got the Bible and Caleb and kind of all by yourself. Uh, This idea of Christianity that's outside of God's plan for our lives. This is not biblical Christianity. We need each other. And we don't just need each other, but we're also called to sharpen one another and encourage one another. You know, the Christian life, it's a community project. We can't, we can't shine as lights into the world by ourselves. We shine as lights to the world. We do it together. And when we think about a flame and a fire, I think this kind of makes sense. You know, I, I love a good fire. <laughs> Sitting outside, nice, cool Florida winter, around a fire, you know, kind of having some s'mores possibly. I've never done it here in Florida, but it sounds fun. Might need a blanket. Probably not, though. Um, that's probably a bit much, but just think about starting a fire uh, here. If you, have, if, you, if you take a single match outside in the dark uh, by itself, it really doesn't do much. You know, it's not going to give much light. You know, it may kind of warm the tip of your finger maybe, um, you know, but it'll probably go out pretty quickly. But when you put the flames together, and we put a bunch of flames together and it kind of builds, it shines brighter and it shines warmer and longer and it puts off some real heat. And if you uh, do it right and, and responsibly, right? If you do it right and responsibly, it can be seen miles and miles away in the dark. And so our, my hope and my prayer for our church is that we would not just be a small flame and a small fire. And when I say that, I'm not talking about the amount of people in our church. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about the brightness of our flame, I would much rather pastor a church our size that shines incredibly bright and hot for God's glory than a church much larger that doesn't shine and that is dull and that is cold. My prayer is that we would each shine so bright for God's glory that we would collectively be like a wildfire, that we would be so hot and so bright whenever someone comes close to our community, whenever someone gets near any of us, they can't help but become a flame in themselves. Because, uh, and want to shine bright for the Lord themselves. And in doing so, brothers and sisters, as the book of Philippians shows us, when this happens, number three, we can rejoice. 
when we are lights in the world, when we are distinct from the world by holding fast to God's word and by not grumbling and arguing, by remembering that God is working in us and through us, it reminds us of our incredible hope. We don't complain and argue. No, we rejoice. And when we rejoice, we shine. And as Paul says in verse 17, 17 and 18, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so may our days, may our days be marked with rejoicing in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation, shining bright as we seek to become more like Jesus. And may we not uh, just rejoice, but as Paul says, rejoice with one another as we, as we each seek to become more like Jesus. And so as we close out our time here today, I want to remind us of just how God works. You know, this passage has is, 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 is been brought out uh, and it, I think it hits it dead on because as we've seen, you know, God wants us to shine bright in a dark world. And God wants us to work out our salvation, remembering that at the same time, God is working in us. And what often happens in the kingdom, we see this idea run its course throughout the Bible, and it's this, before God works through us, he first wants to do a work in us. We see it again here. God wants us to shine and rejoice, but we first need to work out so God can work through us. You know, long, long before our church ever existed, you know, before a vision of our church was ever birthed, you know, God convinced me and made it very clear in his word and just through looking, like studying the history of Christianity that before a revival can ever happen in our city, a revival must first happen in our hearts. In New City Church, I don't have a doubt in my mind that the Lord has worked in each of our hearts. I don't have a doubt in my mind that for each of us to call New City Church home, that when we look back over the past 12 to 15 months, I think we could each say, God has grown us more like Jesus. We may not always see it all the time, we may not always feel it or believe it, but as we look back, I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's a mistake that what has happened has happened. And this week, yet again, the Lord has reignited in my heart and soul, praying for nothing short of a revival. Praying again for God to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. You know, I've, we've seen God do it several times and I want to see him do it again. Maybe it's crazy. Maybe this is completely crazy. But you know what? I would rather be crazy trying to shine a light for Jesus than safe and lackluster and dull doing absolutely nothing. I'll take crazy and bright any day. You know, I really believe that the harvest is ripe. The question we must ask is, will we be faithful to bring in the harvest? Will we be faithful and bold and bright? And y'all, I really do. I really do believe now more than ever that God is reviving our hearts. He is working in us, changing us so that we may shine bright and bring a hot flame to our city, to our workplace, to our neighbors, to our schools and to our campuses. Because when our hearts are revived, when our lives are changed, when that happens, God often starts, sparks a movement that I believe can begin here and reach the ends of the earth. Because brothers and sisters, when we become more like Jesus, we don't hold it in and we don't hold back. No, if God has changed our lives, and we'll see this more next week. If, if God has changed our lives, we want the whole world to know. Because brothers and sisters, New City Church, I, I hope today that you've seen that there is incredible joy. There is great joy in becoming like Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are working in us. Father, you call us to work out what you've began in us. So Father, we love you. We need you. We need your help. Father, we know that you are changing lives. Father God, we know that uh, 
you call us to shine bright, to bring a hot flame, to rejoice. So Father, would we do that and would we do it with, with great faithfulness? We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.